Hey everyone, welcome to the Doomsday Preppers Guide to the MCAT. I'm your only host, so I don't even know why I introduce myself all the time to you. Michael. Um, yeah. Anyway, so today we're going to be talking about psychology, or what the MCAT calls it as the um, behavioral sciences. It's, it's more than just psychology. It's a combination of um, social science and the humanities. Psychology, sociology, philosophy, all things helped shape and create neuropsychology. And so the author of the gear who wrote this book decides that because we're going to be exploring psychology and sociology, we should look at the biological side of psychology first. And I think we should have just went with the philosophy first of psychology and sociology, but whatever. I mean, author of the year, you know? The same guy who, in the last section um, of the biology section that we talked about, basically included apoptosis in an introduction to, to organelles. Like, okay. I mean, that should have been done in the cell cycle or cellular respiration phase. Uh, so, when we talk about neuropsychology, we have to talk about the major contributors to neuropsychology. And there are seven, according to this book. I would think there'd be a lot more, like Aristotle and Descartes, um, those types of people. But this book, and I guess the people who made the MCAT, consider only these seven people to be the most important historical figures in neuropsychology. The first one is Franz Gall. This guy existed from 1758 to 1828, and he had some of the earliest theories about behavior, intellect, and personality. Um, and he tried to link it with brain anatomy, and that was a really backwards-ass shit idea. So yeah, he developed something called phrenology, which is basically the study of brain, not, st sorry, not brain. Uh, he didn't even have a brain, I guess. It's the study of the skull structure. So Gall argued that personality was determined by the brain. Because personality and other traits are determined by the brain, an area of growth on the brain would mean that there's more personality or traits of that particular thing. So let's say you had an area of the brain for intelligence, and that grew more. So technically, you'd have more intelligence, or anger, or lust, or criminal behavior. I don't know. So Gall essentially Actually, uh, Gall argues with phrenology that when your skull, when your brain grows and those traits are exhibited, it will basically malform your skull and you can just measure it and you can basically determine how much of a sexual deviant someone is based on the shape of their skull. Kind of fucked up, right? Uh, so yeah, Gall's theories, um, it was used for a very long time to criminalize minorities. Um, it was used to basically excuse the mistreatment, uh, sometimes even torture of the um, people who had mental disorders. And it was used to control anyone from uh, minorities to children to women to poorer people. Um, that's, that's the dark history of psychology that you won't learn about. Anyway. Yeah, Gaul's phrenology backwards shit. So that that thing is is untrue. Um, the skull can change the the way we look. Basically, the the way our bodies develop is a sign of of health. Um, someone who was exposed to more stress as a child might not be as tall as someone who didn't experience that much stress. However, um, they looked at gladiators, right? So you know how the Roman Empire used to used to have gladiators and like all the senators' uh, wives would cheat on the senators by like sleeping with gladiators and they would basically just have gladiator children? Yeah. 
Rome was weird. Um, they also had training schools for kids, and there were skeletons of kids who died prematurely, I wonder why, um, in the UK, that area, and they measured the, the arm lengths of these skeletons, and depending on the, the class warrior you were for gladiator battles, your body would exhibit certain physiological changes that occurred because you were still growing as a child. So let me look up one of the classes for you. So one of the classes was um, the Ritiarius. It's spelled Ritiarius. I don't even know why it's Ritiarius, but it's also known as the Fisherman. And this class had a guy with barely any clothes on, and he had a face shield, and his weapon was a sphere, like a trident, and um, and a net. And in gladiator battles, he would throw the net at you and then stab you to death with his trident. So yeah, kids who were trained to be gladiators. And, you know, gladiators weren't just slaves. They were also these these popular figures in Roman society. They were they were basically worshipped. I mean, that that's how you get laid with the senator's wife. You have to be you have to be worshipped. Not not worshipped, but you're basically not a second class citizen, is what I'm saying. I mean, you have to win your freedom, but at the same time, um, we're all kind of trapped on Earth. Uh, but that's more existentialism than anything that I'm talking about. So yeah, so you know, physiology, structures of your brain, of your arm, of your your bones, they're representative of what you went through during development. So going back to phrenology, someone's skull shape could indicate certain stresses. Children, when they're newborns, they have softer skulls. And if you leave them on their backs all the time, they would get a flat head. This is called flathead syndrome, also known as plagiocephaly. Um, it's very common in Asian cultures. So I'm three-fourths Asian and I have a little soft flat spot in the back of my head. You can fix that by buying like a a helmet for your, your baby or something like that. But anyway, let's let's move on. So phrenology, it's bullshit. Uh, we shouldn't really judge people on the shape of their skulls. So the next person is Pierre Florins. Uh, he existed from 1794 to 1867. He was the first person to study the major sections of the brain. However, he did this... I mean, he was applauded for it back then, but he wouldn't be applauded for it nowadays. He did it like a serial killer. He basically experimented with procedure on the brain called extirpation, also known as ablation. And in ablation, you just surgically remove parts of the brain, and then you observe the behavior that happens afterwards. So he did this on rabbits, on pigeons, maybe even on neighborhood cats. Who knows? But his work led him to make assertions that the brain had specific parts for specific functions. Um, and removing certain parts of the brain can weaken a part or the entire brain. How true is it to Florin's idea? I don't know, because Gall had similar ideas to Florin's. I mean, all these things deal with the brain, right? But the back of your brain contains the occipital lobe, which is responsible for vision. If you get hit in the back hard enough, you can go blind. The sides of your brain, the temporal regions, that's where you get all your hearing at. The front of your brain, the frontal lobes, that's where your reasoning is. Um, the whole idea of the reptilian brain is this concept of an animal brain that evolved first as a survival mechanism with the amygdala that senses fear and the substantia nigra that releases dopamine for happiness um, and the brainstem later on evolving into the frontal lobes, which is more associated with apes and humans, which are apes. And those are associated with regions of critical thinking, long-term planning, society, communication, complex language, My Little Pony TV shows, and stuff like that. So Gall basically came up with phrenology that the shape of your head determines 
depends what problems you got, basically. Florence took apart animal brains uh, in sections and determined their consequences. Now, in 1842 to 1910, there was a person named William Jane. He's known as the father of American psychology, and he believed in something called functionalism. And it's just a system in psychology that studied how someone's mental thinking is changed based on the environment they are in. So basically where you grew up or how you grew up more so like it can affect how you think. Nature v. Nurture. The next person that came right after James was John Dewey, 1859 to 1952. He's also a really important functionalism and he wrote an article in 1896 that criticized the concept of something called the reflex arc. The reflex arc is a concept that tries to break down a stimulus into discrete parts. So you know, like let's consider a ruler into discrete parts, one inch, two inch, three inch, four inch, all the way to 12 inch, right? Let's break one inch down to discrete parts. So 0.1 inches, 0.2 inches, all the way to 0.9, and then one inches. So that's basically just taking a concept and breaking it down into further discrete parts. Kind of like taking the derivative in calculus, but I really doubt Dewey knew any math. Anyway, next person, he came before and existed around the same time as Dewey. His name was Paul Broca. You might know him for the Broca's area. So Broca, he is famous for observing people who had behavioral deficits, usually caused by brain damage. So he studied a man who was unable to talk, and when he examined him further, he looked at an area of his brain and found a lesion there. And it was because of that lesion, it affected the man's ability to talk. This Broca went on to name after himself, like a true narcissist. He named it the Broca's area. The Broca's area, the part of the brain, is responsible for the production of speech. The Wernicke's area, also Wernicke's not even mentioned in this brief history of neuropsychology. The Wernicke's area is responsible for the comprehension of speech. Next, we have Hermann von Himholtz, who existed from 1821 to 1894. He's really famous because he measured the speed of a nerve impulse. So with a nerve impulse, you would think an action potential is the depolarization of a cell, of a neuronal cell body fluctuating between the sodium potassium pumps, right? And so it generates an electric current and electricity uh, is made up of electrons and electrons usually flow at or near the speed of light. But that's not how Himholtz did it. Himholtz did it by studying the reaction time of a person or an animal. So he would cause a stimulus and see how long it would take for that organism to react. And that was how he determined the speed of a nerve impulse. So Hemholtz, he's accredited for helping transition psychology into more of a natural science. So we're moving away from Aristotle and Descartes. You know, Aristotle, the guy who said that if you drop a wood chip and a hundred pound stone, that the hundred pound stone would fall to the ground quicker than the wood chip, which is completely false. Things fall at the same rate. 9.8 meters squared per second. That's the acceleration of gravity. Or that's the, the force of gravity that we all feel constantly on Earth, keeping us stuck to the Earth. And Descartes came up with this uh, also backward shit idea of I think, therefore I am. Well, Descartes also figured out trigonometry, so we'll thank him for that. But a lot of people use the I think, therefore I am thing to to basically say, if you think something, you, you are it, or you can become it. Something like that. So Sir Charles Sherrington, he came around 1857 to 1952, and he is known for finding the existence of synapses. So remember earlier when I talked about the neuronal cell body, synapses are at the tips 
or the ends of the neuron. And these synapses help basically transfer electrical signals to the next nerve cell. So Sherrington, he only went as far as to hypothesize that it's the transmission of electrical signals at the synapse that causes this, the stimulation. Um, but we know it's more of a chemical process now with these things called neurotransmitters, which bind to the receptors, which then can cause conductance or a change in an electrical gradient, things like that. So let's summarize. Franz Gall, he had the backwards idea of phrenology, where the shape of your skull determines your behavior. That's bad. Pierre Florence, he experimented with ablation extirpation, which just means removing parts of the brain and then observing the consequences of what happens when you remove certain parts of the brain. William James, he was the father of American psychology. He believed in functionalism. Basically, the environment creates the thinking, not I think, therefore I am. John Dewey, he further extrapolated on functionalism, and he criticized the reflex art. And he believed that psychology should focus more on the study of an organism as a whole versus something that is just broken down into discrete parts. Remember? Ruler, it's made up of 12 inches. Paul Broca, he observed people with neurological deficits and behavioral deficits, uh, and he found a lesion in someone's brain. They were unable to speak, and so he named it the Broca's area. He didn't name it after his patient, but he named it after himself. So, pretty nice guy. Hermann von Himholtz, he measured the speed of a nerve impulse via reaction time, and he helped transition psychology into more of a natural science. And Sir Charles Sherrington, he hypothesized that synaptic transmissions were merely electrical impulses. We know that that is now kind of true. Um, you also require neurotransmitters. Just an aside, just a quick aside, electricity has marveled humans for a really long time. Frankenstein, this book written by Mary Shelley in 1823, first depicted the use of electricity on an organism to, I guess, transmute it, to create change, to bring back life into it some biological process. This went on further with multiple people using electricity throughout history, usually at medical schools, to show that you can cause, even if something died, you can cause its muscles to still flex and contract with an electrical impulse. To make this more relevant, AEDs, automated external defibrillators, these send electrical impulses to try to get the heart back out of ventricular tachycardia and to help reproduce a normal sinus rhythm for the heart. Now this next section will talk about the organization of the human nervous system. The human nervous system can be broken down. Well, the book doesn't go into it, but let's let's talk about it first. So what consists of a nervous system? The nervous system for things are different. For mammals, there's a central nervous system. For some animals, they have simpler organisms like worms. They don't really have a brain. But for the, the mammalian nervous system, this includes mice, wombats, I hope those are mammals, uh, whales, apes, humans. They have a central nervous system, which is considered the brain. And attached to that is the spinal cord, which is also a part of the central nervous system. The thing that branches outwards from the spinal cord that basically is attached to the other parts of the body, that's called the peripheral nervous system. And that's how stimuli from the outside world gets sent to the spine and to the brain. The only time it doesn't go to the brain is if it's a quick reflex, like touching a hot stove. So there are two nervous systems, the central and the peripheral nervous system. 
for a mammal. And within the nervous system, there are three kinds of nerve cells. There's sensory neurons, motor neurons, and interneurons. Sensory neurons, also known as afferent neurons, help transmit sensory information from receptors to the spinal cord and brain. Motor neurons, also known as efferent neurons, they help transmit motor information from the brain and spinal cord to muscles and glands. So, you know, your heart is involuntary, but let's say you want to move your leg. Because you want to get up. Because you've been sitting down all day and you need to get up. As you're listening to this, you probably need to get up right now. And just get some blood flowing. So you should get up. So you should get up. In your brain, you know you have to get up. It just sends a signal to your... Okay, well, it sends a signal at the, at the prefrontal cortex. Because you're like, I gotta get up. And then it sends it to the cerebellum, which is the athlete's part of the brain. And then that gets sent down through a bunch of other parts of the brain to the spinal cord. Which finally gets to your midsection and your legs and you get up. So inner neurons, they're found between other neurons and they are the most plentiful of the neurons. They're located mainly in the brain and spinal cord and they help with reflexive behavior. Remember reflex arcs? Uh, this is a little bit more complex than what people at the time in the 1800s were thinking about them. Neural circuits, they're called reflex arcs and they help control this type of behavior. Again, going back to touching that hot pan or stepping on a nail, it doesn't have to travel to the brain because by the time it travels to the brain, it might be too late and it might cause severe injuries. Your spinal cord has a reflex arc, which is capable of reacting before your brain even processes and sends a reaction back to your muscles to do. Pretty cool. Alright, so basically we went over the nervous system. It's made up of central and periphery. The central nervous system is made of the brain and the spinal cord. The periphery or peripheral nervous system is made up of the somatic and autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is made up of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. There's also something called the enteric system, but that's not important. So the somatic nervous system consists of the sensory and motor neurons distributed throughout your skin, your joints, your muscles, and these help transmit the information through afferent fibers. Motor impulses, they travel, remember, they travel along efferent fibers. The autonomic nervous system, that regulates your heartbeat, your breathing. I mean, you can think about breathing, but you usually don't have to. Your digestion, aka enteric nervous system, glandular secretions, Basically, it's, it's all the involuntary stuff that you don't have to think about, and you do. I wish, I wish, I wish more things were autonomic, you know? Just an aside, um, if you watched The Theory of Everything, the movie about Stephen Hawking and his first wife, you find out that Lou Gehrig's disease, his ALS, it doesn't affect his erections because his erections are part of his autonomic nervous system. So thank you, Hollywood and Stephen Hawking. So the autonomic nervous system can be broken down into three subdivisions, but this book breaks it down into two subdivisions, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Now these two branches, they are opposite of one another, also known as antagonists. The sympathetic nervous system, that can accelerate the heart rate and inhibit digestion. So sympathetic, think sympathy, fight or flight. So the way I remember how the fight or flight system works with sympathetic nervous system is just being sympathetic to a situation. So when you're more sympathetic to a situation, uh, you're more aware of it, you're more alert, so you can increase your heart rate, slow down digestion, and get away from it. And the parasympathetic nervous system, I just think parasympathetic, para is relaxed, as in to conserve energy. So this is involved with resting, with sleeping, um, it reduces your heart rate, it constricts your bronchi, it's also responsible for digestion, 
and basically peristalsis, the movement of the muscles in your intestine that help like bring food down. And then also other secretions. So acetylcholine, that is a neurotransmitter that aids the parasympathetic nerve system a lot. So let's, let's quickly talk about I'm going to give you some situations, and these situations, we're going to deduce if they're autonomic or... Well, they are autonomic. We're going to deduce if they're parasympathetic or sympathetic, all right? Sitting in class and breathing. So you're not taking a test. You're just sitting there breathing. That would be parasympathetic because you're in a resting state. Getting a test back and your heart starts beating faster. That's the activation of the sympathetic nervous system because you're nervous. Remember, sympathetic to a situation. Constriction of your pupils. Now, that is tricky because your pupils can constrict when you go out into sunlight, right? Your pupils can dilate or constrict when you're scared, so that both ways can work. Uh, the stimulation of the flow of saliva, that is parasympathetic because it's involved in digestion. Constriction of the bronchi, that's parasympathetic. Slowing down the heartbeat, parasympathetic. Stimulates the release of bile, so secretions, that's parasympathetic. The constriction of your bladder, that is sympathetic because you don't want to be using the bathroom when you're in an emergency, aka being sympathetic to a situation. So just remember that sympathetic is activated by stress, and parasympathetic is a relaxed, conserved energy state. Uh, just an aside, also remember Stephen Hawking. Simulation of orgasms or arousal, sexual arousal, is also a sympathetic response. So some people just can't help it. But, you know, that's why we have a bigger brain, and our organs are so small, our sex organs. It's because our brains are supposed to... Tell us no. You know, so listen to your brain. So the third part is about the organization of the brain. Now, there are three main organizations of the brain. The hindbrain, the midbrain, and the forebrain. The hindbrain is responsible for your control of balance, motor coordination, breathing, digestion, and general arousal, such as sleeping and waking up. So the, the hindbrain also is responsible for maintaining the necessary physiological functions to stay alive. The midbrain, that part of your brain receives sensory and motor information from the rest of your body and it's associated with involuntary reflexes triggered by visual or auditory stimuli so when you scroll through your phone and you click on this podcast you are activating your midbrain now the comprehension of this podcast after clicking on it that's more of your forebrain your forebrain that area is responsible more for perception and thinking slash behavior. Uh, this is also where you can find emotion and memory. The forebrain, it influences human behavior because it, it's so emotional and it's so filled with memories, as one could say, even though most memories, well, no, that's true. The hippocampus is a part of consolidation of memories and the forebrain, the frontal cortex is where memories are stored. So this is parts of your brain. Um, I want to take a step out and talk about your skull, basically your hair to your skin, to your skull, to your brain. So what what is it? So the first layer is skin on top of your skull. And then there's something called the periosteum. The periosteum, it is this thin membrane that covers almost all the bones in your body. It serves as protection, but also the most important thing about it is that it is a channel where blood supply and nutrients can be given to bone tissue. You need this area to basically deliver nutrients to one of the most important structures that people think little about, and it's their their muscular skeletal system. You know, this this is responsible for so many things. Uh, it's where your hemopoietic 
stem cells are made, which from that derives all your other immune cells, your red blood cells, your platelets, your antibodies. Well, it makes the B cell, which makes the antibody. And then uh, it's it's your skeletal system stores calcium, and it, it also supports your entire body, along with ligaments and collagen. Uh, it, it helps you move muscles. But the skeletal system is, is a very important system, and it requires this thin layer for nutrients. Uh, the thin layer, again, it's called the periosteum. And then you have the bone. As you know, bone, if you look at it underneath a microscope, it has all these, uh, it's not solid, it's it's like a spongy material. And it's this spongy material along with the osteocyte, which helps your bone be strong. Um, it maintains the integrity of your bone. And the osteoblast, which if you don't use it, you lose it. It helps break down what the body thinks is an excess in bone when it's not. Well, you do need your osteoblasts. There are important reasons for this. One of them is that if you never could break down your bones, you could experience excessive buildup in the bones. Also, bones change with age. It's not every seven years you get a new skeleton, but your bones are constantly being restructured, rebuilt, broken down. Like an LA freeway that never finishes getting repaired and people are always stuck in traffic, you know, but really more efficient than that. The osteocytes and the osteoblasts, they also play a role in when you get a break or a fracture. Osteocytes will go to a fracture region or a broken region and actually make it stronger so that next time it's pretty much harder to break than before. So after a while, you know, you can see this on x-rays and it's like an extra ridge or more surface area, a more rigid area. And so through time, you know, it's not like every month you're going to break your arm, but you need your arm to be strong. Through time, if you don't break your arm as much, I mean, people probably do break their arm every month. Some people, I don't know, like base jumpers and stuff. Osteoblasts slowly chip away at that layer and soon you can basically have a normal arm. I don't think it's that normal. I think if they ever did an autopsy on you, they could see still determine where in life you had a broken bone and when. We've exhumed mummies and preserved bodies in like bogs and we can still determine what age they were when they died based on their skeleton and how far along their injuries were healed based on their skeleton even if they died from cannibalism from the use of a cutting instrument on their bone. So there's so many things you can tell from bones. I mean, I guess that's why they made the show called Bones. Cool, right? The next layer is called the dura mater layer. This layer is a thick membrane. It's irregular. It's connective tissue. It surrounds the brain and the spinal cord. And it's it makes up the outermost of the three layers of something called the meninges. And the meninges help protect the central nervous system. And the function of the meninges, along with cerebral spinal fluid, CSF. It's to protect the central nervous system. The envelopment that the meninges along with the cerebral spinal fluid create around the central nervous system, it helps stick to the surface of the brain and the spinal cord and this can become like a shock absorber. Again, it's not perfect. There's a condition known as meningitis. You can get bacterial, viral, parasitic, um, or other forms of meningitis, and that means that there's an inflammation of your meninges, which can cause swelling. Remember, it's adhered to your central nervous system, so your brain, your spine, and it's the swelling of the meninges that can cause damage by a buildup of pressure. The layer beneath the dura mater is called the arachnoid mater. Arachnoid mater sounds a lot like arachnid, which is spider, and that's exactly what it would look like underneath a, a microscope. It literally looks like spider webs, and the arachnid mater is this thin and transparent membrane. It surrounds the spinal cord, and it acts as a loosely fitting sac. 
and it is this sac that, along with the duramata, helps protect the brain and spinal cord from impacts, uh, blunt force trauma, stuff like that. Just another aside, the human body was never meant to be involved in a car accident. We were never meant to sit inside a vehicle, a metal body, traveling at 70 to 100 miles an hour. If you're in the UK, I, I'll, I'll look it up for you right now. All right, it's 113 to 121 kilometers per hour. We were never meant to be in those types of accidents. And it's, you know, our, we can survive punches, falls, things like that. Sometimes even getting hit with a rock on the head. But there's something about traveling at such high speeds. You'll learn about it in physics, but the higher your velocity, the the more force, the more kinetic energy, and therefore force, is acting on your body. And that sudden stop just causes everything to lunge forward. And the Duramata, Arachnoid Mater, those things were never evolved to withstand or to cushion such blows. The last layer before we get to the brain is called the Pia Mater. Pia Mater is a really delicate membrane that envelops the brain and the spinal cord. Again, just like with the Dura Mater and the Rachnoid Mater, it helps with cushioning what it covers. And it's also where there's a lot of cerebral spinal fluid, which also plays a role in that cushioning process. So the meninges in general, that is to help the basically what people call the central governor of your body, the brain, from impacts, from blunt force trauma. It's not perfect as we see time and time again, but it does a really good job at keeping us alive and safe. So with all this talk about the cerebral spinal fluid, which is protecting the brain, where does it even come from? In the internal cavities of the brain, there are these structures called ventricles. They're cells, um, they're specialized cells that produce cerebral spinal fluid. And I'm going to look up the ingredients for cerebral spinal fluid for you, because if you ever watch those medical shows, people taste a metallic sour taste in their mouth whenever they have a brain leak. Yeah, but I think it's mostly glucose. Let's find out. So besides glucose, the cerebral spinal fluid is composed of colorless plasma that's ultra filtered and it's low in protein. It's, it's really, it's really, really pure because you do not want a microbe or a virus to, or a parasite to enter the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, it has to be pure. So we went over the generalized main three structures of the brain, the hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain, along with the Meninges, which protect the brain and the cerebral spinal fluid and the ventricles. There's a lot more. I mean, our brains are so complex. We still have yet to talk about the brainstem, the limbic system, the cerebral cortex, the temporal lobe, the pituitary gland, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the pons, the medulla, apagata, the cerebellum, the corpus callosum, the thalamus, and the forebrain. Well, we talked some a lot about the forebrain, but the parts of the forebrain and what their functions are, and oh my god, I'm going crazy. No, um... <laughs> Sorry, I thought that would be funny. But there's a lot. There's a lot of shit. Um, and I love talking about it. I love, I mean, I want to be a doctor. I, I, I mean, I, I was a scientist. I'm a researcher. I'm in public health right now. It's just cool. The human body, anybody, the anybody, no pun intended, um, anybody in terms of organisms, including bacteria and archaea, they are so amazing in that they do what they do so intelligently and perfectly. And intelligence in this matter is defined as um, what it takes to stay alive in a world that's constantly being bombarded by other microbes, UV radiation, uh, genetic mutations. It's such a cool and vast thing, you know, back in the space age, uh, 1960, well, before that too, they launched Sputnik in, let me check, 
They launched Sputnik in 1957. Sputnik was a Soviet Union satellite. The Soviets beat us in a lot in the space race. Uh, we beat them to the moon, which is the most important part, I guess. But in terms of human rights, I mean, the Soviets were the first to put a woman in space. But they also sent satellites to Venus, made Sputnik, had like a... Well, they sent chimps up into space, and the chimps, they all died. No one tells you about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, capitalism in the end of the day wins, because we just kept spending money. I mean, but this is getting really political, so forget anything I'm saying about that. Let's just say that the next few sections, we're going to talk about the embryonic brain, because you're not born with a hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain. Those structures are anatomical subdivisions of the brain, and they are developed through a tiny, tiny cell. Basically, mom and dad, egg and sperm, create one cell, and that cell, through a certain period of time, I think in the third month, forms the neural tube. And the neural tube slowly develops into the central nervous system that we have when a baby is born. There's a lot to talk about. So I'm really excited and I look forward to the psychology section of this podcast series. The next section, uh, just FYI, I lost my physics prep book. I have many, many physics textbooks. I'll probably just end up stealing a physics prep book online somehow. Wink, wink. No, um, yeah, I, I don't have the physics prep book, which is fine. It's probably at my other house. Not my other house, my dad's house. Yeah, but I do have chemistry, organic chemistry, biochemistry, the, the critical analysis questioning part of the MCAT. I have those. So I'll look for the uh, physics prep, but I think we should, in the next few sections, go over more quantitative things. So it's either going to be chemistry or physics. And I've never tried to explain physics or chemistry through nothing but auditory means to someone before, but I guess that's, that's a part of teaching and learning and studying, right? You find new ways to stimulate your brain and create those I mean, I'm sounding like a fucking nerd right now. Uh, those neural patterns, I guess, that help you think and help you memorize stuff. So, oh, a quick aside. We don't really lose memory as we get older unless we have some kind of neurological dysfunction going on, like dementia. Most of us retain our memories. So there is a hypothesis that the reason why it takes older people so long to, to say stuff, to think, is because they have accumulated so much more knowledge and so much more experience than younger people people who have less so there was a vocabulary test now i know what you're thinking vocabulary right but on average an older person age 60 compared to a 16 year old will know about 20 to 30,000 more words than the 16 year old um, i looked up some stats for you just now a one-year-old child knows about 50 words three-year-old child knows a thousand words five-year-old child knows 10,000 words, and then at 16, it's about 15 to 20,000 words. Now, you progressively gain more knowledge as you age crystalline and fluid intelligence, but the total amount of words in the English language is 170,000 words. Just to put this into perspective, Shakespeare made about, well, he didn't make, but he used about 25,000 words in all his works, and the Wall Street Journal uses roughly 20,000 words to explain things. So yeah, basically older adults, I don't even know what I was talking about, but the brain is cool. I mean, this is this whole point was about the behavioral sciences. So there you go. You know a bunch of facts now. So have a good day. Stay safe. Leave a comment. Follow me. Not in real life, but on this podcast. Uh, just stay tuned. I'm really excited about the, the next few episodes I get to make. So thanks for listening.
making a hell.